We are here at 11FS headquarters in London. We work for episode 16 of Blockchain Insider. Today we bring you Bitcoin floats with the moon, making a new all-time high. More on the relationship between big banks and Bitcoin. And guess what? Jamie Dimon has more to say. Stellar trolls ripple, ripple trolls swift, swift trolls ripple back. There's a whole lot of trolls in this space. And the ongoing saga of Bitcoin and Ethereum's forks, the forkening is upon us. On with the news. So for the news, joining us once again uh, is Colin G. Platt. Colin G. Platt, how are you, sir? I'm doing fantastic. Got a beer in my hand. I'm ready to talk about some crypto. That sounds like the right kind of prep for talking about crypto. Um, and first story up, we cannot, cannot ignore that Bitcoin has gone to the moon. It's set up a bit of a colony um, around uh, hitting a new all-time high at $5,856 at one point. Uh, this is, uh, for, for everyone who said that uh, it's a bit of a scam, it's a bit of a Ponzi, it's only for drugs, uh, maybe maybe there's one in the eye there. I mean, is this? it seems like it's here to stay, it just keeps coming back. What, what's going on here colin oh man this is it's crazy if we look at the prices and where this thing's gone just in the last couple couple of months um is absolutely off the charts um we knew this thing was very volatile and prices went up and down a lot uh, over the last last few years so it's not necessarily unprecedented um but it's kind of interesting to see that uh though a lot of people are questioning the viability of bitcoin long term and maybe with forks coming up uh, this month and the ones we saw over this summer um, with SegWit and Bitcoin Cash. It's amazing to see that status quo makes the price go higher. So good on it. Um, hopefully we'll see more of this. Maybe we'll see more, but it seems like uh, Wall Street and the cryptocurrency space have been having a really, really long courtship and there's been lots of drama. Uh, there's a story this week coming out of Bloomberg. Um, it's They're saying that this is the week banks went nuts over cryptocurrencies um, and Wall Street. Has Wall Street finally gone nuts over cryptocurrencies? Um, I, I don't know if this thing has formally gone uh, full-blown Wall Street crazy um, in the same way that, say, subprime mortgages went. Um, but definitely there, there's a peaking of interest across a number of firms, not only JP Morgan, which we've talked about on numerous occasions, um, but this article cites um, companies like UBS, which of course have been involved in the blockchain space uh, for a few years now, um, Citigroup, uh, Coots, which is a new one that we've finally heard about. So, of course, the Queen's Bank um, has said they're not necessarily ready for it yet. Of course, it's a very conservative institution. We know what happened with the Queen's former bank um, in, in Asia with some less than uh, stellar returns from certain traders. Um, so it's good to see that there is still people going back and forth and deciding where this fits in the banking industry. It's not necessarily meant for them, so I think we need to consider that. But it's really interesting to see that it's not only Jamie Dimon trying to hack this stuff down, but bankers coming out and saying, well, there may be something to this and this may be a new asset class. So let's not discount it fully. So, Colin, to me, it all seems a bit schizophrenic from the banks at the moment. It's either we think we should say something on the subject and what we're going to say is, well, be careful, you know, it's interesting, but it's not that great. Or they're saying, actually, it's really interesting and it could eventually become a thing. Uh, one thing's for sure, they all have something to say, but nobody has more to say than the one and only Mr. Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JP Morgan. Uh, he was uh, sort of saying there's a story in CNB 
CBDC, where JP Morgan's Jamie Dimon is betting on blockchain, even as he calls Bitcoin stupid. This is a bit of a saga, Colin. He seems to go back and forth and back and forth on this subject. What's actually happening? Well, he's been calling Bitcoin stupid for a few years now, as we we outlined a couple of shows ago. Um, So it's not really out of line. What was really interesting is they had uh, the third quarter earnings call a few weeks ago. And uh, on that call, Jamie Dimon said, um, I'm going to stop talking about Bitcoin, which is probably a smart move because he doesn't really know enough about it to make an educated discussion around Bitcoin. So best just to shut up. And a lot of people have pointed out it's best just to shut up if you don't know about it. Um, what was really interesting is that he's um, right after he did that, the next day come down, doubled down on saying it's stupid, but I like um, blockchain. Of course, his team also recently came out with a new interbank platform, uh, a partnership with uh, ANZ here in Australia uh, and RBC in Canada. What was really funny about this is um, one of our one of our friends um, from another bank and who remain unnamed uh, said, God, God, do we really need yet another interbank payments platform? And does somebody want to tell Jamie Dimon this is 2017? Um, Jamie Dimon is firmly where we all were kind of discussing in 2015, say it's not about Bitcoin, it's about blockchain. Um, The world's moved on. And actually, even Jamie Dimon's CFO, uh, there's another article we have in here, kind of dialed this all back and said, well, it's early and they're still sussing it out, but they're not ruling anything out, including Bitcoin itself. Um, JP Morgan is a bit of a clusterfuck nowadays uh, on the on the topic of Bitcoin. They're doing some great work inside of blockchain type stuff, and they're even considering possibly a new asset class that just necessarily hasn't gotten to the top. Yeah, that's, I think that's really interesting, Colin. That it, it is it, it's schizophrenic. It, it's all over the place. Um, the, there's the CFO dialing back. There's uh, people doing amazing things on the quorum interbank side, as you say. Um, there are, and then there's the CEO saying all kinds of different stuff. It, it just says to me again that their clients are asking questions, and the rise of Bitcoin and this news about all-time highs is getting people's attention. Uh, and again, uh, there's a macro trend here of cryptocurrencies get people to pay attention to the subject of blockchain which gets people to really rethink how their internal systems work but actually maybe the innovation's not just happening in blockchain dlt you've got to understand both sides of uh, both sides of the coin um if if i can avoid being too cliche about it um but let's move on from jamie diamond because we could probably spend entire shows um just trying to figure out what's going on in that guy's head (laughs) And I want to enter the payment zone. Uh, there's a whole bunch of stories coming out this week because it's, uh, it's Cybos right now, uh, happening in Toronto. Uh, but across the street from Cybos, Ripple, um, the kind of famous DLT company who are all about payments, have built their own event called Swell. Um, so at the Ripple event, of course, Ben Bernanke, the former, uh, was it chairman of the Fed, Federal Reserve in the US, has come out and said the blockchain has obvious benefits in payments. Uh, what what do we see here in this one, Colin? What are the obvious benefits that blockchain can can help with? So um, Ben Bernanke's comments were interesting. So his obvious benefits, obviously, um, we should remember that uh, Ben Bernanke presided over the Fed um, at the time of the largest financial crisis in recent memory around the world uh, and led this at kind of the epicenter of that in the United States. Um, he saw obvious areas in these technologies where you could um, identify 
all the provenance of an asset, who owns what, where, that would have been coming very handy if we started talking about things like CDS and where money went. Obviously, Lehman Brothers' failure would have been nice to know where you could unwind that and where you couldn't. Um, one of his big criticisms about uh, cryptocurrencies, however, were the ones that were seemingly working against regulators, things like Bitcoin, um, and trying to be an anarchic system. Um, he, he pointed out that it's meant to be an attempt to replace fiat currencies, invade governments and regulations. He saw that um, governments wouldn't let this succeed, which sounds a whole lot like Jamie Dimon and what he said. But he was, he was interested in how he nuanced this and said he thinks that cryptocurrencies like Ripple uh, and its XRPs uh, or Ripples would be more successful because they actively try to work with regulators. Jury's still out on that, and that hasn't necessarily been the history uh, of what we've seen so far. Um, but it is an interesting nuance that uh, Jamie Dimon hasn't gotten to yet. Yeah, I think that nuance of where a cryptocurrency can actually improve payment systems, can reduce cost, and can increase transparency, uh, then that's really valuable. But I think people often look at Bitcoin and go, oh, it is intrinsically bad, when the reality is it's one of, uh, you know, compared to the rest of the payment systems in the world, it's one of the least likely ways uh, that somebody would do any kind of money laundering or financial crime, uh, because it is so transparent by default. And sure, it's anonymous in theory, but it's actually pseudonymous. It's relatively true to figure out who somebody is once they're transacting on Bitcoin, unless they're being really, really clever about hiding their identity. And if they're being really, really clever about hiding their identity, then they're suspicious. So immediately you've kind of got this transparency that you don't have in payment networks today. So I still think this cloud that follows Bitcoin around is, is a little unfair. Uh, but then that said, there are things, there are technologies like Ripple that have been designed not to uh, get around having central banks in the first place that are far faster, far cheaper uh, than uh, Bitcoin is today. But of course, we'll come back to uh, some, of the, uh, some of the things that are happening in the fork to, to try and address that. But of course, it's not just Ripple that are trying to make payments better. I was at an event in Barcelona last week uh, where I had somebody from Ripple on one side of me and then I had somebody from Swift on the other side of me. And Swift have their own... Uh their own answer for how they're going to make payments a bit better because uh, payments, usually when you send an international payment, you don't know how long it's going to take to get there and you don't know where it's going. So Swift's answer to this is what they call their Global Payments Initiative, GPI. And of course, when their CEOs announced that at Cybos this week, he said, it's not a swell, but a tsunami, taking an obvious shot at the swell conference from Ripple there. Uh, so there's this, this little bit catty, uh, meow, but... Uh, <laughs> There's I, I, Coindesk covered this one with an interesting uh, headline uh, highlighting Swift's strained relationship with blockchain. Um, I think that's an interesting response. Colin, do you have any thoughts on that? I, I, I'd just like to point out, and I, I saw this on Twitter, so I'm, I'm not the origin of this, but um, tsunamis are generally linked with very bad things. Um, I'm thinking of nuclear reactors blowing up in Japan, uh, people losing, losing their lives. I wouldn't really want to project that image on top of what I'm trying to build. I don't know what's happened in the last couple of weeks with innovation people and talking about their innovation, but messaging really needs some work. Um, it was quite an interesting uh, thing from what I understood um, and how he was talking about it. And they are doing some interesting things, so let's not completely discredit Swift. Um, but I think Swift is, A, not the boogeyman of uh, what blockchain should try to avoid, and B, I don't think everybody should be out trying to create a better Swift. Um, I think a lot of people really fail to understand what Swift does and what it doesn't do. Um, and I hope companies like Ripple succeed, but I don't know if just decentralizing it is necessarily fixing the problem. 
Um, let's see what they all come up with. Um, but let's not go. Let's also not try to go for uh, it's five or ten percent better. Let's try to go for actually step change and, and make things better. Here, here. I think there's a need for those step changes. Um, of course, when he was at uh, this event as well, the screen switched to an image of tulip bulbs, and the audience erupted in laughter. And I think actually that's uh, a reference, of course, to the tulip, the Dutch tulip bubble of the 17th century, in which tulips were briefly worth more than houses. And people keep pointing at this as, oh, well, that's clearly what's happening with Bitcoin. But it isn't, because Bitcoin seems to keep crashing and then coming back up and crashing and coming back up. And that's not what happened with tulips. So I do think there's an arrogance in the banking community. Mm -hmm. Their ignorance is uh, kind of masked with some of this laughter and with their scale. And, and make no doubt about it, Swift is still utterly enormous uh, in contrast to any of the cryptocurrency space. But I, I just don't like this, um, well, we're going to ignore it all and we're just going to focus on efficiency um, because the opportunity cost of doing that, I think, is much more significant. It's one thing to say we're, we're just going to focus on efficiency in our existing business, but where's your new business coming from? Where's your growth coming from? What's happening in emerging markets? Uh, and this is why I think what IBM have done recently. Um, so there's a headline here, IBM's Stellar move, the tech giant IBM uh, is using a cryptocurrency in cross-border payments. I think this is an interesting moment and some interesting people at IBM behind this one. So they're using uh, the Lumen cryptocurrency as a payments rail. Uh, so it's interesting that this traditional kind of uh, vendor to banks is sort of saying, actually, maybe there's something in this cryptocurrency space, Colin. Yeah. So uh, let me just point out that this was an awesome troll, by the way, uh, from Stellar, uh, not necessarily IBM, but I guess they were in on it as well. Um, so Jed McCaleb, who was one of the original founders of Ripple, um, had a falling out with uh, the rest of the, the founders of Ripple and, and the board at the time in about, what was it, early 2015, late 2014, um, and set out to set up his own company called Stellar, which was initially a fork of Ripple and since things have diverged. Um, he made this announcement immediately before Swell, so trying to kind of steal their thunder. And it is a really interesting thing. So IBM obviously has done a lot of work with Fabric and, and DLT. And what they're talking about is using this public blockchain, using Lumens, um, to make a payment rail between Great British Pounds and Fijian dollars. So I can't imagine it's one of the largest payment uh, corridors in the world. But it's interesting to see that IBM is open to open blockchains. Um, and being that IBM is having all of these discussions with companies about doing proofs of concept on private blockchains, I have to imagine this is kind of a canary in the coal mine for a whole lot of enterprises looking at this. We've started to talk about things on the show, mostly outside of banking, but this is squarely in the payment sector. Completely. Um, and speaking of squarely in the payment sector, uh, there's something here from the um, People's Bank of China. Uh, the, their digital currency director, which is an interesting job title, has called for a centralized state cryptocurrency. So it definitely seems like uh, China, who had uh, banned all things happening in the ICO and then uh, Bitcoin sales space, really want to get their hands around having their own cryptocurrency. They want some of the uh, some of the advantages of this digital money, um, but they very much want the centralized state to be controlling it. Can, can you have such a thing? Uh, a lot of people pointed out that that's kind of an oxymoron and you can't really have a true cryptocurrency if it's centralized. Um, much like uh, Ben Bernanke's comments that we talked about earlier in the show, um, I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name, but uh, the director from the PBOC said that um, 
he sees a lot of issues with AML KYC, sees money moving where it shouldn't necessarily move in his opinion, or according to law, let's be honest about these things. Um, but he's he does see a lot of what we're seeing inside of the blockchain world or the DLT world in true advantages of knowing where payments are going and being able to execute them uh, without having all these silos. And let me just link this into something else that was really interesting that came out. Russia also came out and said that they were talking about a crypto ruble. So two major central banks have come out in the last week and said, we're really interested in this blockchain thing. I believe the PBOC was not necessarily a blockchain or a DLT. And because it's coming from the uh, research teams inside the central banks, really what they're saying is very much research sounding stuff. So, for example, uh, in a statement, he sort of quotes uh, the, the Chinese central bank chap quotes the nature of the deflationary nature of the economic systems. So Bitcoin has a total cap of 21 million Bitcoin, and he sees that uh, as actually a step back in currencies. Well, of course, many people would say that's what makes Bitcoin interesting is that it actually increases in value. But I can see why from a central bank's perspective, given what a central bank wants to do for its economy and for its sovereign, it might be seen as going against their goals. But also their goals might be going against the goals of some citizens um, who are losing value. So I, I do think, you know, consider the position you sit in and consider your perspective on these currencies as a result of the position you sit in. He talks about um, the nature of state-owned digital currency is a liability, and it's backed by sovereign credibility. Um, this view that sovereign credibility is a shield that makes everything okay, um, whereas there are plenty of things that don't have quote-unquote sovereign credibility that, that still retain value like, like gold. But uh, the last thing here is he cites the RS coin design concept by the Bank of England as a promising example, which of course came from the University College London and I was quite close to. Um, RS coin was not dissimilar from Ripple in how it was designed, um, but it pictures a system that's controlled by a central bank. Um, and the role of central banks might not just be deciding how much to uh, supply, but also designing the role of the supplying algorithm, which I, I do stand by and think is an interesting set of concepts. Uh, but where um, the Bank of England kind of came to after this was, look, the technology is still early. We think if anything, it's got benefits around resiliency rather than cost efficiency. Uh, and they're, they're, st they're not exactly aggressively moving into the cryptocurrency space. But if other banks wanted to do it and they could see value in it, like, for example, utility settlement coin or adopting Ripple, then perhaps they will. And there's a really interesting thing here that people keep following the Central Bank uh, of England's early research papers in sort of a 12-month time lag. But when we look at it and see it from the other side of the world, uh, it always looks more impressive with a, with a PBOC logo on it, in, in my opinion. But let's move on, Colin, because uh, uh, my, my diatribes aside, uh, we've got to cover some more drama on the Ripple side this week. Um, Ripple and R3, their legal battle, moves to San Francisco and New York. And there was a fantastic tweet behind this one. Colin, do you have the backstory here? This one's really interesting. Um, so we, we were watching this a couple of weeks ago. Um, what had happened was that it came out that R3 had entered into an agreement with uh, Ripple, the company, to acquire a certain amount of, of Ripples, uh, the XRP currency, uh, for promoting their platform through their on, ongoing work with uh, a number of banks. Obviously, good trade on both sides. It came out a couple of weeks ago that... Uh, this, this option they had was worth about $1 billion U.S. billion, so quite a lot of money due to the price rise in Ripple. Um, 
it was alleged by R3 that um, Ripple no longer wanted to honor this and um, that they were going to renege and pull out their option unilaterally, which is, of course, if you hold an option, you would expect that not to happen. They filed a court case with the state of Delaware to pursue this, um, and it turned out what we heard this week from the court in Delaware was they didn't have jurisdiction over it. So um, Ripple came out on Twitter, as you do, and said, oh, well, we triumphed over them because uh, this got thrown out of court, which is factually true but quite misleading. Um, like like I said just a moment ago, the state of Delaware said, right, we don't really have an opinion on this because it's not our battle to deal with. It's something that should be dealt with either in San Francisco or New York, but at least not by us. So um, there is still a, a counter case that Ripple's suing uh, R3. I'm, I'm not sure the, the exact details of that, um, but it's going back and forth, and there's a lot of fire going back on Twitter. I, I recommend having a look at these things from both R3 and from Ripple. I don't know that the response from, from Ripple was necessarily what I would want to be doing at the same time I'm trying to market to um, a bunch of suits sitting at Cybos, um, but it is an interesting tact, and it is a lot of money. It is a billion dollars we're talking about here. So it's interesting to me that um, there's, there's a lot of uh, war of words on Twitter and a lot of people from Ripple side getting really excited uh, about this. But it seems like uh, much of a muchness and the kind of thing that uh, the a lot of people would rather just kind of deal with in private. It, it, it's, it's interesting in the different PR approaches different organizations take in this space. But uh, let's see how this one continues to progress. Uh, there's another story as well, whilst we're on the um, corporate um, DLT side of uh, things. Uh, Digital Asset Holdings, of course, Blythe Masters blockchain company, has created, uh, completed sorry, uh, a $40 million Series B funding round. So uh, what do they need more funding for, Colin? I, I'm not sure. They don't say too much about it. Congratulations to Blythe and the team. Um, so $40 million is obviously a, a good chunk of change. Very interesting to see this didn't come from their existing shareholders or even the same type, which were generally um, financial services firms or technology firms that provided to um, financial services. Um, this was from uh, private equity buyers. So lots of money coming in, perhaps on, on very different types of investment. Um, really interesting to see that um, they're, they're quite tight-lipped about what they're going to do with the money. They did say they were going to use some of it to expand headcount, which is great. Um, I would say this is a very positive sign, as I'm sure we'll talk about in the next couple of months. Um, they are actively working on this um, Australia Stock Exchange deal. And we should know, I think, by the end of this year or possibly next month, um, what the state of that is. So I would say this is quite a positive signal that that is going quite well. So congratulations to them. Um, hope to see more out of them. And, and hopefully they will come join us on the show and tell us about all the great things they're doing. Yeah, it seems like there's uh, definitely more momentum there. Uh, good on them for, for making a raise. Last, um, but by no means least, we've got to get to the Tale of Two Forks, um, which sounds like uh, some sort of Ronnie Corbett sketch for, for the Brits among us. There's definitely a need to talk about what's going on with Bitcoin because the price is at an all-time high. Uh, around the time, we're talking about Segwit2x. Um, now, we talked about this on the last show. Um, we did give an update. So very quickly, uh, what, are the, what are the new developments, Colin? Right. So um, there, there are obviously ongoing discussions. Um, we know now, I think I cited last week that we didn't know exactly when it was happening. We know that it's now the 18th of November is when it's uh, slated to fork. Um, so this was according to something called the New York Agreement that took place around consensus earlier this year, which is um, a big uh, cryptocurrency conference that happens in New York each year. 
of course, New York agreement. Um, they decided that uh, they needed to have 80% of miners signaling uh, that they were supporting this agreement. Right now, it's sitting somewhere around 86% as we record this. Uh, it has dropped a bit from the mid-90s. Um, and a lot of companies have started to drop out of this. So it's not necessarily a positive thing for the people that are supporting this, um, namely the digital currency group. Um, very interesting to see that this has kind of taken a weird turn as well. So a company called BitGo, won't get too much into the details, but BitGo is a, is a company that provides services to other companies, mostly startups um, at, at current, to use cryptocurrencies in day-to-day -day business. Um, they are, are led by a, a gentleman named Mike Belshi, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, the CEO there, who was a, a supporter of the New York Agreement. And a lot of people pointed out this New York Agreement was signed by CEOs, not necessarily the technical people. There was an interesting Twitter um, feedback here from one of the chief engineers, uh, a Jameson Lopp, who talked about how uh, he doesn't really support this and how it's such a bad idea and it will split Bitcoin, uh, which is not necessarily a positive thing. Uh, Mike came out and was kind of attacking him on Twitter. Then the CTO came out and defended Jameson and started attacking Mike and saying, essentially, call it off. Nobody else wants this. You'll split the, block the blockchain. Um, it's interesting to see, in uh, we talked about it earlier, transparency in the space. It's just everybody's running around. There, there is absolutely no filter between their brain and apparently their keyboard on Twitter. Um, everybody's talking about all of their disagreements. So I don't know where the this stands for the future of this company in particular. But if people are to be believed, um, there is a, a bit of a divide between the CEOs who are less technical that signed this agreement and what's actually happening in the more technical parts of these companies. Um, very unfortunate event, Jameson Lopp, who we talked about here, um, had somebody call up and, and the police where he lived in North Carolina and report that there was uh, a hostage situation for some reason. Um, and of course, the, the police called into his house potentially very dangerous. Um, not necessarily great to see things escalating to this level, but uh, this only seems kind of like the next level from where we were, were over the summer with the, the forking debate. Um, we'll note, uh, as, as we said, Codebase uh, is not yet fully released. This is BTC1 is the new client. Um, we don't know what's going to happen. This fork may or may not happen on 18th of November, but that's the latest date we have. Um, really interesting blog um, from uh, Kieran Murphy uh, talks about a few other things in depth, but about the whole discussion of this really comes down to is who owns the trademark of, of Bitcoin if this thing splits. Um, he has some very strong views on what this might mean in centralization. Worth having a read. Uh, you can find the notes uh, in the show notes. So, Colin, the drama in this one just keeps continuing. There are p police being called out. There's everything happening. I really do think in years' time when uh, if Bitcoin continues to work and continues to exist and becomes uh, something bigger than it is today, people will look back at this thing and go, wow, the stories of how this thing was forged are probably more interesting than the fact that it exists and revolutionized. I don't remember there being this many stories about uh, the internet being built. Uh, so there, there are just so many crazy stories like this. Um, there's another fork as well happening there's the ethereum byzantium fork and there's a whole bunch of other stories we just don't have time for because this space is so hectic at the moment i want to give you some highlights if you're curious and you're on your commute somewhere or you're in your car listening um the new scientist has a story about a house being bought on a blockchain for the first time like a house somebody bought a house uh, 
Someone just lost $70,000 in a failed ICO purchase attempt. And then, last but not least, again for the Brits, Harry Redknapp. Harry Redknapp, who was briefly considered to be the England manager and then there was some uh, England soccer manager and then was there was some controversy around him, so he was kiboshed on that, uh, has now endorsed a cryptocurrency. So clearly, uh, credibility in his future is what he's thinking about. Um, and uh, this is this is about Electroneum, um, who are describing themselves as the UK's first cryptocurrency, which I'm not sure is factually correct, Colin. There's, uh, listeners, uh, you can let us know what you want to hear about on the show. Give us your views. Um, get in touch on Twitter at Insider. That's B Chain Insider, or one word. Um, or get in touch with at Colin G Platt or at SY Taylor if you want to pick up anything with us personally. Or you can always email podcasts at 11fs.com. Just a quick reminder uh, 11fs, the company that brings you this podcast, are a challenger agency who help banks, asset managers, or anyone with a challenge of blockchain in whatever industry uh, to achieve more, get live, do real things. Uh, if you want to understand how to commercialize blockchain projects, how to get them real, uh, or you just need a speaker for your next. Next event, we hope you'll get in touch. Drop us a line at hello at 11fs.co.uk or hit up um, our website, 11fs.com. We're also hiring. Check out the careers page. All right, next up, I need to get to a couple of interviews. And first, of course, we have the wonderful Brian Berndorf. I'm saying his name wrong. I know I am. Uh, from the Hyperledger Project. And sorry, Brian, I said your name wrong. Uh, over to me talking to Brian, where I think I say his name correctly. I have the pleasure of being joined by the one and only Brian Bellendorf. How are you, sir? Pretty good. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So, Brian, you, of course, uh, represent the Hyperledger Foundation. Can you tell me what that is? The Hyperledger Project, actually, within the Linux Foundation. Oh, you see, like, <laughs> this... I was going to get my language wrong, but, like... I don't mean to, like, well, actually you, but... Uh, yeah. No, hey, uh, I'm all for somebody with a little bit of uh, pedantic sense of what the right answer is. Lord knows we need that, given the Cambrian explosion of technologies happening in the blockchain space. So I appreciate that, and I... Uh, uh, so, yes, tell me... We make it pretty complicated by having three layers of brand in what we do. But, so I work for the Linux Foundation, right? The Linux Foundation's been a part of the connective tissue of the open source community for 15 years now, pulling together... Developers on one end, giving them kind of a governance uh, for how they write their code, how they do continuous integration, how they like actually ship their product and make it something enterprises can trust, right? And on the other half of that community are the companies in the Linux uh, space who want to build on top of this, want to depend upon it as a platform, want it to become plumbing, you know, infrastructure, frankly, things they can take for granted. But we know that it takes work and coordination to do that, right? So Very cool. A few years ago, the Linux Foundation started to expand beyond uh, the Linux operating system into software to find networking, cloud computing, and now blockchain technology. And so Hyperledger, a project embedded inside the Linux Foundation, launched uh, in December 2015 was the first announcement. Um, the first code drop was February of 2015, and I joined in May. And so I'm executive director of Hyperledger, and I report to the executive director, Jim Zemlin, of the Linux Foundation. Very, very well. I, I think you've done that before once or twice. That, that was pretty pretty accurate and, and fast. So um, tell me, what are its key functions? Like, what's it for? Who's a member? Why would I get involved? All this sort of good stuff. So uh, it launched when there was a realization that um, there was a, a, not a, quite a need for somebody like the Linux Foundation to address uh, what's going on in the Bitcoin space. There were plenty of both organizations and a lot of commercial activity there, really solid. But it seemed that there was a story to tell and potentially other directions for the technology take one level below, 
which was at this distributed ledger and smart contract layer. Lots of different opinions on how to forge a consensus around a, a ledger, right? What are the consensus mechanisms to use? Lots of different opinions on what the right kind of smart contract language should be. Should it be something familiar like Java? Should it be something memory safe like Go? Uh, or should it be something built de novo for the uh, smart contract space like Solidity, right? Wow. So um, there is a, that perception of a need to pull together something that was perhaps a little earlier stage than Linux was when the Linux Foundation started because Linux benefited from 30 years of operating system design by the time it showed up, you know, in the late early 90s. In this space, again, this Cambrian explosion, as you put it, really called for an approach that said, right, let's take some interesting projects there, bring them under one umbrella, uh, and give them uh, kind of the, the both the legal provenance so that enterprises know where the code comes from and they can trust that they can use it, organizes the developer community around it so that, you know, it's an independent multi-stakeholder. You don't have to worry about if one vendor disappears, you know, suddenly not being able to use the technology effectively or not know who you can call to support it or a bug gets discovered, how do you report that? Bring all these pieces together under one umbrella. And that's what we do at the um, at, at Hyperledger. Just getting your arms around everything that was going on because as you say, when you talk to, when, when I talk to uh, executives uh, from any type of corporation, be they technical or non-technical, they're still trying to struggle. This question of what is blockchain is really hard to answer because the answer to that depends. There's many answers to that. And it's it's kind of like nerds to have some arguments about things. Like you can take it from comic books to software engineering. Nerds have opinions on what the right way to do something is. So how do you take all of those and put your arms around them? Like do you, you've got some governance models and you've got a few of the ways of kind of sure. to making that make sense for people. Well, so first off is to take what we've inherited from the Linux Foundation and really from the open source community, going back to the foundations of the Apache Software Foundation to um, and the Free Software Foundation and others, which is what makes open source communities work. It's working in the public. Uh, so all of the software development activities are public facing. Anybody can join. You, you don't have to be a big company, a small company. You don't have to pay to get access. You don't have to pay to build a business on top of it. This is truly free code and there's transparency into how it's built, right? So set as a baseline that any project that comes into Hyperledger has to hit that ideal. It is also something where the governance around that has to be shareable. It, it can't be the domain of one vendor. It can't be the domain of one person with a bright idea. It has to be something that where it, it survives the hit by a bus problem, but also truly can become a synthesis of a lot of different ideas. Surviving the hit by a bus problem. I think that's a, a title of a podcast there one day. And then also it needs to be minded around actually turning even the early code experiments into something that eventually can be production quality and deployed in an enterprise. This is what differentiates it from GitHub, say, right? Our goal is not to be the GitHub of blockchain. So GitHub, of course, being the famous place where people just push code and pull code and it is just literally managing the code itself. There's a lot more to it to make it able to use at scale. Extremely useful, extremely terrific what they've been able to provide for the open source community. And we build on top of that. In fact, uh, many of the projects actually store their code at GitHub and and use that and do issue management there, that sort of thing. Um, but really, this is about technical governance. And then another half of what we do is about trying to explain what distributed ledgers, smart contracts, blockchain technology so can do for the enterprises. So talking about use cases around uh, not only settlement and wire transfers, but healthcare, uh, you know, uh, patient records, provider directories, supply chains, I mean, all these other applications that this can go into, talk about the use cases, map that to our technologies and help people understand 
there's a bigger picture here than just payments. Absolutely. There's an education piece that's really, really critical, but there's also this technical governance, as you call it, which is actually moving the thing forward and making it ready to use. And you, you hit upon use cases there, but before we, we get into some of those use cases, there's not just one code base, of course. There's there's, there's eight in there. And yeah. how, how is it having eight children? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's actually not not the, a, a poor metaphor because they are, they are unique in projects. Typically, they uh, are born outside of the organization and come to us. Nothing is really de novo out of, you know, sprung forth from our head. They are projects that started like Fabric. Fabric was initially developed inside of IBM. Uh, and uh, uh, they knew that they needed to not only open source this, but really build a technical community around this and a business community around it. So when they would go to sell to an industry at a time, you know, let's integrate your industry using this tech, that industry would know that they had other options, right? They would know that it was uh, a movement being plugged into and not just one vendor solution. So um, uh, Fabric started life there. Uh, Sawtooth, likewise, started inside of Intel, uh, Intel's labs as like a Intel different approach. Inside. <laughs> uh, yeah, sort of. Uh, uh, in fact, it uses a, a feature. Uh, one of its features is a, a consensus mechanism called proof of elapsed time. It uses some features of Intel's chips and their secure enclave extensions, uh, which uh, could also be really interesting from a confidentiality perspective around smart contracts, et cetera. So as a platform to explore that, that's really interesting. Um, uh, Fabric uh, has achieved 1.0 status uh, in July, which was uh, really a sign intended to be a signal from the developer community to the broader uh, public that this code, we believe, is ready for production use. Now, that doesn't mean throw it into a 100,000 TPS <laughs> kind of core banking infrastructure just yet, right? But as uh, and this is now code that the developers are willing to fix bugs in or willing to, to, to use as the basis for moving forward. And that's a really significant point because one of the things um, when talking to businesses, again, through the consulting arm of 11FS, I hear is, when's it going to be ready? When can I use this? Isn't it five years out? Isn't it 10 years out? But actually, I'm sure you have a number of examples where some of the code bases are being used for projects that are larger than just trying something in a basement somewhere. Yeah, so uh, the diamond supply chain is one of my favorites, and it's probably familiar to, to listeners, of course. Um, but that's uh, been in pilot mode now for a couple of years. Uh, uh, they've been working on this project, and as Fabric matured, um, that's come in and, and been a, a basis for for experimentation and for them to to figure out does this work. And they're in late stage a pilot now. Basically, they're shadowing the official diamond supply chain reporting processes, something called the Kimberly process, which is a process for keeping conflict diamonds out of the supply chain. Um, they're in late stages of that now, which is where they're shadowing the official paperwork process. And at a certain point, end of this year, early next, I've, they've said they'll they'll move it to a production system uh, where that becomes the system of record for you know the flow of these diamonds who has the right to pass them on to the next hop that sort of thing so that that pivot point is something you'll see you know kind of all over the map where a late stage pilot will be one that shadows existing processes or or creates create something new and then whenever everybody or enough people a critical threshold of participants in that market say this works let's let's give it a go there's a something that's flipped and now that becomes um, the system of record so what do you think the challenges are from getting to where we are today and what general challenges do you think we face you you've talked about you you have eight children you have a market that exists outside that and more and more people launching new token sales every day and then new uh, code bases every day uh, do we are we still in this fragmentation phase and and how do we move past that and is this fragmentation phase good because i for one find it particularly exciting having all of these different ideas around it just... we should still feel excited about it it's it's there's a bit of cognitive burden to it you know you've heard of the tyranny of choice you know when you have too many choices it actually is painful uh registers as pain to the brain to have to choose between 
between options that don't seem all that different. Um, so I have a ton of sympathy for people who are not early stage. If you're early stage, you're used to dealing with diversity of choice, right? And that you thrive on that because you like taking a portfolio approach and trying things. And a lot of enterprises have. Let's dabble with uh, Corda. Let's dabble with Fabric. Let's let's understand the, the strength and weaknesses of each and also understand these are vectors. These aren't uh, points in time, right? So let's get to understand the communities behind them and, and where they head, right? And there's and so for early adopters, there's always going to be that portfolio approach. For mid-market uh, adopters who, you know, don't want to spend the money it takes to, to have that, the but but are more eager than, than perhaps others to get them in production, they're going to watch those market leaders and look for the signals. And in different sectors, uh, different pilots will move ahead, that sort of thing, and they'll tend to be fast followers. You used a key word there, sectors. Uh, so people have viewed this as a financial services technology, I think probably largely because Bitcoin came along and Bitcoin was going to get rid of banks forever and it was going to completely wipe away every type of middleman in the world. What are you seeing from a sector standpoint? Is financial services further ahead or are there others that now that are starting to, to do interesting things? And, and give me two or three examples. You know, money makes the world go round, right? So any sector ultimately needs to get need, needs to realize a financial model to make this sustainable. Right to make the and this is about exchanging value, tracking goods, reinventing procedures, you know those sorts of things. I mean, in the healthcare sector, where I'd say it's a it's it's uh, you know a couple of years behind in some ways in terms of of interest, but they're catching up really fast. There are use cases that range from you know tracking the pharmaceutical supply chain to try to keep fake drugs out of the market or try to trace bad batches of drugs back to the manufacturer into the batch, right? Uh, to um, provider directories, which sounds odd, but they're basically ways of looking up doctors and making sure they're certified, they're licensed to practice. Uh, This is amazingly a hard information management problem in the States at least, and having a shared directory to look that up uh, would be really nice. All the way to what many consider kind of the holy grail in this space, which would be portable medical records, which might blow your mind to think of using a distributed ledger to facilitate, you know, something as sensitive as your, you know, test results for a test or something. But instead of storing the data in the cloud, it's storing pointers and hashes and signatures. And so so in all these sec- in that sector alone, healthcare, I think we'll see uh, a lot of novel use cases emerge that have payments and the fringes, payments on the perimeter, um, uh, and of course claims processing and that sort of thing. And healthcare will be really huge. You, you touched on an interesting point there, which is uh, one I hear a lot: is you know, a lot of use cases. Why not just use a database? Why not just centralize? Which is the model, the world model we understand. It's the world model we know. And you 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 throw away a statement about uh, hash pointers and signatures and so on. Just Explore that concept a little bit. Why why I might not want to take medical records and, and centralize them into one governance body or, or, or the pros and cons of each approach, maybe, because I think it is a pros and cons type of... So- as technologists, uh, we've gotten really good at being able to build highly scalable central databases, right? If we want to build something on the scale of a, of a, of a Twitter or a Facebook um, or something that could handle all the transactions of, uh, you know, all the credit card transactions worldwide, we can probably figure out how to do that through sharding, through NoSQL databases. We've come up with a lot of fancy tricks. Um, in every use case that I could give you about a place where a blockchain technology makes sense, you always can turn around and say, wouldn't it be faster, cheaper, and more flexible to do this and easier to set up as a centralized database? And that is, will always be true. But for the same reason that this city decided it didn't want Uber to be at the center of its cab uh, industry <laughs> a few weeks ago, for the same reason that um, the banks worldwide would kind of be unhappy if there was one company in the center acting as the ledger for everybody's accounts, 
you know, everywhere. Um, there are markets and there are governments uh, and there are citizens who I think would protest the idea of a whole, whole industries, whole sectors, whole, whole nations essentially going to a centralized model for to keeping track of who owns what and where things go. So this is the example that for supply chains, like where do I centralize supply chains? Do I centralize them in China or the US? And uh, which jurisdiction and rule set do I apply? And then which companies will use that centralized database? It, it all gets very, very difficult to figure out how I just centralize all of the things. Or if I was to centralize all of the banks in the world, well, I've just created a too big to fail bank of, of, a, of a mammoth scale. So if it had a problem, we, we'd really have a problem. So yeah, efficiency is one thing, but balance is probably something else. And it's another technical option to get some of the benefits of centralization whilst you get some of the real world benefits of decentralization. Yeah. And, and we tend to approach these as absolutes when there there's a spectrum. And, and I've started to use the term minimum viable centralization <laughs> to try to describe like this architectural ideal that in some ways, I think like the domain name system exhibits this, right? We don't have just one DNS server we all look up. There is a root a set of root name servers, and there's ICANN that kind of manages the top-level zones. But then there's a lot of federation and a lot of distribution and sufficient decentralization that the system seems to work, right? And in a lot of permission ledgers, there's a very valid concern, you know, where, okay, because uh, permission ledgers, as you know, differ from things like the unpermissioned or uh, permissionless ones by having one or more authorities in any given network who say, you know, who are the nodes in the network? Who's allowed to participate, right? And there's a few more rules around it. So your Bitcoin would would be permissionless and in, 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 uh, Ethereum as it's done publicly, permissionless. And then you have a spectrum again of permissionless to permissioned and you can have different ways of achieving that. And I think there's an automatic assumption and I don't think it's invalid at all and, and certainly well informed by history that says, you know, if you have a banking network, you know, and there's 20 participants in the banks, they're going to be highly incented to keep out the 21st, right? And so we'll have to keep watch as we build these kinds of networks to make sure that, you know, there aren't any trust issues, there aren't cabal issues that emerge. But as technologists, the best thing we can be doing is building technology that never makes it hard to add the 21st member, right? That never makes it, no, everything will slow down. No, it won't perform. You know, if we can remove that objection, then it truly becomes a much more of a societal question. You know, how big should these networks be? How public should they be? Ideally, if you have a startup business, joining a network like that should be as easy as signing the business equivalent of an end user license agreement, right? That says, click here, you and now you on this as a node on this network, and you have the equal ability to submit transactions as you know Goldman Sachs or Bank of America, right? That's that's the dream. I, I hope the Hyperledger project helps us get there. So where can people get involved? Um, you say you're an open community. It's all I, I see tweets from you guys all the time and getting involved and all this kind of good stuff. You have events in many cities, I assume, and we have meetups in over sixty different cities. Uh, and these are very decentralized. These are very co coordinated by locals. If there's not a meetup happening in your city, let us know. We'll help you get started with that. Um, we try to have a presence, but we also try to turn on lights around our community in these different areas. And what's really nice is blockchain technology is not a Silicon Valley phenomenon, right? Like unlike other industries, uh, other other technology movements, uh, uh, this one is being lit up here in London. It's being lit up in New York. It's being lit up in Asia all over. I mean, uh, about 40% of our corporate sponsors in Hyperledger come from uh, Asia. 25% of them from uh, are headquartered in mainland China. So I'm on the road a lot. Um, but, but if you want to learn more, uh, if you're a developer, come to Hyperledger. 
hyperledger.org. Actually, if you're a developer or if you're simply interested in this topic uh, and trying to understand what do what does blockchain technology mean on the enterprise, what does it mean in this kind of different angle, um, we hope uh, uh, there's something there for everybody. I think some of the education stuff you guys do is really helpful as well. As a free resource to get education, hyperledger.org would be an interesting one to, to think about. Uh, and also, yeah, get to the meetups and meet some interesting professionals. If you thought, as a company, I could really use maybe some of this stuff, but I don't understand it well enough, and there's a community of people out there. I, before I let you go, I want to pick up on that Silicon Valley point, because you made me curious. I, I, I fundamentally believe that distributed ledger tech or blockchain uh, kind of messes with the Silicon Valley model of we centralize all of the value onto one company's platform, and we abstract rent for that. And, and it inverts it and says, well, actually, no, lots of companies now work in a network. In the last couple of months with this token sale thing, we've kind of seen that change maybe a little bit, and it's become Silicon Valley cool. And it's always very hard for something to really catch fire without that Silicon Valley cool around it. And I, I compare the AI movement of like, just like, you can't stop people talking about it versus the uh, kind of the distributed ledger blockchain movement, which has a very different feel to it. How do you reflect on that? Do you think that's a fair assessment or do you have a different view? Uh, you know, the ICO thing even does seem driven in, uh, in a pretty decentralized way. Um, I, you know, I'm not sure that you always need a coin to facilitate some of the things that ICOs want to do. Uh, uh, so I, uh, that's a whole nother thread of conversation. But um, I, I, it, it is still, uh, you know, all the angles of this that we we participate on, you know, which um, are just, again, about getting embedded inside these different industries, these sectors, and looking at these, as you called it, you know, these these risks of centralization to, to many of these uh, uh, markets. Um, and you see the players now a lot smarter about technology than before. I think 10 years ago, people were willing to write off, you know, improving the taxi industry to somebody like an Uber, all right? And now there's a record, you know, uh, or, or the equivalent of that kind of deeper in the enterprise. And now banks are a lot smarter about technology. Healthcare companies are a lot smarter about technology it's not something that people are, are willing to outsource to to a silicon valley company anymore so it's very cool let's see what the communities do hyperledger.org to learn more brian thank you very much for being on blockchain insider thank you for having me Alrighty, thank you very much, Brian. Great to hear about what Hyperledger are up to. And of course, hyperledger.org if you want to get in touch. Next, I speak to Paul Worrell, the CEO of Zonified. So I'm here with Paul Worrell from uh, Zonified. Paul, how are you, sir? I'm good. Thanks Thanks for having me here. Thanks for being on Blockchain Insider. So, Paul, um, before I uh, explore Zonified, tell me a little bit about you first. Oh, well, I'm getting on a bit now, so uh, that that could be a long story, so you have to cut me short. So I'm Paul Worrell. I'm founder of Zonified, um, but I've had about 30 years in technology, right back from the late uh, 1980s, where I started with comp computer-aided design and manufacture. Um, I ended up in, obviously, investment banking and financial services that sucked all of the technology people in. So I spent a lot of time in dealing with floor construction, real-time data, stuff like that through the 90s. Um, I've had a few uh, startup forays where I leave, earn some money, leave for a year or so, try something, doesn't qu quite work out as expected, and then end up popping back into the banks. So um, I did that in the early 2000s in the dot-com bubble. Did it for a few years, didn't quite make it. So I ended up working for JP Morgan Chase for about uh, eight years. And I left in 2014 to start Zonified. So tell me what problem Zonified solves. What, what are you going after? Right. So 
The history is it was a personal problem that we had with identity theft in 2013. Um, quite a few friends, uh, our family had various forms of uh, uh, compromise on their bank accounts um, uh, uh, with uh, mobile phone uh, purchases and contracts, things like that. And um, and I thought that this is this this is a real uh, you know problem here. It's all about uh, losing control of your information. And um, uh, and then someone obviously is going and using that information to impersonate you and take out a contract. I thought there had to be an alternative way, something that I could use the uh, the take up of smartphones, the take up of um, I was going to say cryptographic technology, but actually I'll, we'll come to that in a minute. But generally, the fact that people are used to using their smartphone, they're used to using messaging uh, tools, and that, that was accelerating. I thought there's got to be a way of solving that problem. I didn't know how at the time, but uh, so instead of getting letters and instead of dealing with uh, kind of the ways in which we've we've dealt with banks and other bodies in the past you wanted to digitize that and leverage smartphone technology but also what, what did you end up building how did you solve that problem of identity right so because my background is sort of ecosystems out of financial services um, I've had a lot of experience of business models um, you know how experience sell information to help people uh, to uh, credit checks and things like that. Um, I sat back and thought there's got to be an ecosystem here that I can create using the technology um, that has the people that are verifying information uh, more connected with the people that are having their information um, uh, verified. Um, and there's got to be a way of leveraging the relationships around them. So when we did uh, quite a bit of research, we found there was three things uh, that were, were key and have become key principles in our business. One is people. There was always someone else who felt that they knew that their friend or family member would not have done something. Okay. Also, everybody was focused on protecting information, but we thought that battle was lost. So we started to focus more on activities and how can we stop people acting on information, which is subtly different, but it gives you a novel, different uh, way of approaching the problem. And then the third thing was a bit the hardest not to crack, actually, which was how to get organizations and people to be able to collaborate in a really simple way that they trusted. And I already had a lot of experience with cryptographic solutions, something called OpenPGP, which is a traditional method of uh, uh, encrypting email and things like that. Um, so I was trying to use that kind of technology, but it was so cumbersome and so awkward and it inherited a lot of legacy around um, controls over cryptography. And then um, early last year, uh, we obviously encountered blockchain and that technology, and I was skeptical. I didn't know what role it would play in my, in our business, um, you know. But that's changed how we've how we've approached the problem. So, OpenPGP is something I often hear a lot of folks uh, who are traditional software developers, uh, such as yourself, but uh, that haven't really explored the blockchain space. Say, what on earth do I need a blockchain for if I've got PGP? I can send a message and I can sign it. Like, what more do I possibly need in the world, Paul? Right. The problem with that is uh, um, I can just explain it as when we spoke to a lot of companies about how they, we could interact with them with our product using sort of a peer-to-peer -peer cryptography like that, their problem was just transport. I mean, they just got so many issues with security. They were locking down all the different forms of technical transport and they didn't want to start to... What's technical transport? Uh, you know, a transport like uh, receiving email or accessing a website you know, for a service on a website, they really were rolling back saying we're out of control here. 
we don't know how to manage these forms of services um, so they just didn't trust them and I think that's a real issue for corporates and large organizations like governments they they are very very scared of cyber breaches and you mentioned Equifax I mean they they got getting Equifaxed is becoming a verb I think even though you've got controls of like PGP and signing and have been around for some time that's not a protection and people are still using those channels like email to compromise somebody um, more on the social engineering side and so on mm-hmm. so those three dynamics you talk talked about a moment ago give you a different approach to solving it along with the technology like blockchain is that is that where you're coming from well what you get from blockchain is that it's sort of universally accessible okay i mean uh, not everybody's accessing it not everybody understands it yet but generally speaking it is universally accessible it's it has this uh, you know it's this great big uh, network um of collaborating uh, computers Uh, that are all trying to ensure that the integrity of um, a small amount of data is correct. But what does that mean to uh, Mrs. Executive, Mr. Executive, who have looked at this blockchain subject for a while and they've heard about DLT? What does that give me that I didn't have before that there were a load of computers out there maintaining integrity? I think the point is that everything, even, everything was case by case, case by case, and there were so many different options available, and that's difficult to manage. But with the blockchain, you get one ideology, uh, one set of coherent uh, concepts, uh, and a, com- a very large community and even an industry now that's completely committed um, to making it work. So from a cybersecurity and data um, integrity standpoint, you get a new option? Absolutely. And so what problems could I solve as a, as a large organization then with that, not just from a cybersecurity standpoint? Are there other things that um, Zonified is helping people do? And can you give me an example? Well, if I give an example of Zonified then, because we kind of missed that. So it, it ha- the, 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 the um, strap line has evolved as we've uh, migrated into the blockchain space. So we've adopted that concept of a digital wallet. Most people, if they know anything about a digital wallet, just really see it as storing some kind of cryptocurrency. Um, but what we're doing is using the same term, but instead of cryptocurrency, it's activities. So it's activities that you're doing that you want to protect, you want to avoid being compromised. Um, examples are um, you're buying a house and your solicitor wants to share with you payment instructions. You can uh, avoid that being compromised by sharing an activity with a payment instruction, in, for example. So it's more like uh, people are using this term digital wallet, but really it's a mobile app on your phone that's like a gateway to doing secure things. Like it's almost like a little vault, a vault for your important information that sits on your device and allows you to interact with uh, a network that's doing important big things. And without doing it on a piece of paper where you could have identity theft as an issue, you're doing it digitally, but you're not doing it with the old digital signatures. You're doing it with this extra bit of blockchain magic. Yes, you are. And there are, there are, few things that are uncomfortable for an old technical architect like myself where I was trying to avoid having any central point of attack um, and things like that because now you've got this one massive network that's storing the same amount of data and it is actually public but we thought a lot about that and uh, came up with sort of a CCTV analogy that people are uncomfortable about CCTV but if you speak to most people they say well I feel safer with CCTV, right, even though it's public. So we are actually storing these activities on the blockchain, but there's no data in them. Um, They're kind of a a zero-knowledge proof. There's nothing in them at all. So it's like storing that a thing happened, but not who was that thing and what was that thing. It's just a thing happened and then a reference number so that if you wanted to, you could go and work your way back to what actually happened if you had the appropriate access or the appropriate need to do so. If you are party to that activity, 
Um, and in the technology, they have this public-private key, you know, way of uh, identifying that you are party to something. Um, you're the only people that can actually collaborate with that. You're the only people who can change the state of it. Um, and you're the only people that can actually check that what it pertains to is... You know what it's so, so everybody can see that a thing happened, but nobody knows what that thing is, other than the people who have the keys to see that thing. Yes, uh, and because this thing, even though nobody else knows what it is, happens in in this sort of uh, open public way, even though nobody can see what it is, it makes it easier for oper- uh, organizations to interoperate and have a standard to manage their secure transactions between each other, and also to do a workflow. When I'm buying uh, a house, I'm starting with some house discovery, but then I have. Solicitation and then I have land registry and blah, blah, blah. So it's not just the fact that land registry need to update their records and it takes three to six months to get the paperwork, but it's the bank need to update theirs and the solicitors and Mm -hmm. the other bank for the people selling it and so on. And coordinating all of that activity Mm -hmm. is actually a hard problem. It is. It is a very hard problem, um, and it's a problem that the, the customer has to bear. So we've become acclimatized um, to dealing one-to-one with each organization, and we have to um, uh, adapt ourselves for each organization, and then we have to be the carrier of the data to the next organization. But we're talking about having the concept of a, a self-sovereign journey where you're controlling all the information and all the state, and you become the conduit between all these companies. This digital administration for customer journeys would be like the the design thinking yeah. type of tagline for it. I've got this vault on my phone, and if I'm interacting with lots of companies and they all support this vault, I guess, then I can walk through those journeys. Um, but because it's happening on this uh, open public set of technologies, built a bit like the internet, but with more um, ways of securing state change, as you call it, that a thing has happened and we all agree a thing has happened, it allows allows me to solve problems that I couldn't before because that's been hard. So talk to me when somebody says to me, but can't I just use APIs for that? What's what's the response to why you, you, you couldn't do that? Because I hear that a well, lot. You do, you do use APIs for that, really. I mean, when you access uh, the internet, you're using this very popular protocol called HTTP, which people may have seen that they typed into their uh, web browser. Um, we, we use the Ethereum blockchain. It's got a very uh, mature sort of uh, programming uh, development uh, software stack and so um, it is it is an API that's how you're accessing it and the APIs uh, are just an extension of how you'd access the internet so it's not APIs or blockchain it's an API into a blockchain and the blockchain is doing something different it's allowing the uh, consensus between or the agreement between all of those organizations that a thing has happened without sort of because today I'd have to have them all sending messages at each other exactly of. yeah and think about that if you've got so many messages and so many coordinating parties, the potential for a problem yeah. is really big. It, it's, it's sort of like a spider's web of communication. Yes. Everybody's talking to everybody and nobody can agree where we are because there's mm. 10 different people all trying to move something along. And it's not like a, a production line in a car plant where one thing happens and another thing happens. There's a bit of chaos in the system. So we need a way to get us all around the same table yeah. and agree what's happening. It does seem odd, as I say, for people with 30 years worth of experience and going through distributed technology uh, concepts it does seem odd that the blockchain is this one massive 
um, how did Ethereum call it? They call it the world, world computer. computer. Exactly, the world computer. Um, it does seem odd at first, but then actually when you really think about it, um, we do have issues of scalability and performance that we'd be worried about. Um, but they'll, they're problems that will be solved. But when you actually think about it, it, it just makes things really consistent and everyone's agreeing to the same protocol. That makes a lot of sense, Paul. So where can people find out more about what you do at Zonified? Um, so we've got a uh, obviously a website www.zonified.net. Um, we've got a number of channels that hopefully you can put uh, in. You know your show notes, yeah, show notes, etc. Um, I think a point I want to make though is that before we even started developing the product and going down this route with blockchain, we already had a use case with local authorities across England and Wales, um, an authoritative uh, use case. And um, we started training them on the product because already, we've already developed the minimum viable product. We started training them on that at uh, the end of last year. So we've been training uh, registrars uh, to provide the public in uh, life event notices like marriage and death and things like that to use the product. So the public can go... Uh, with the first uh, service it's a newlywed name change so if you're getting married and you want to update your records after your marriage with a name change uh, you can create an activity in our wallet present it to a registrar and they'll happily give you what we call a registrar seal on that activity and then that makes it pretty much uh, evidence that you've been married and you can share that with many organisations all at once then instead instead of having to sit on the phone or exchange pieces of paper. Well that just sounds downright convenient. There are a lot of parts of the world with uh, that, that have this sort of problem it's not just the uk of course uh, the us has a very fragmented government system um the uh, canada's somewhat uh, less fragmented but it, you could talk about uh, australia you could talk about any country in the world even the likes of the um adars in india there's still a lot of paperwork in in governments so being able to have the ability to uh, have this digital way on my mobile phone of moving forward my interaction with local government especially i think it's really interesting that you've just started to do that work directly with them rather than going to central governments or going to world yeah, we, economic we explicitly forum avoided doing that because obviously being a startup um, to go to central government, that would be really difficult. But because now there's been this, what do you call it, devolution, um, the local authorities have the right now to develop new services. And with austerity, they, they need to. So we came up with a business plan for them that should get an additional 30 million a year just in that registry services uh, business of, of income from providing quite valuable additional non-statutory services, they call them. The, there aren't enough good digital services from governments generally. So uh, having the ability for the startup sector to solve for you and your local government, I think makes makes a whole ton of sense wherever you are in the world. So I hope people will check out Zonified and what you guys do. Okay, that's great. Thanks very much, Simon. Thanks for being on Blockchain Insider. Thank you very much to Paul. I really enjoyed that interview. And a big thank you to our guests today, um, Brian and, of course, my co-host at Colin G. Platt. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a review on iTunes. Those reviews help us so much. You have no idea. And spread the word. Tell your friends and colleagues to listen to. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye.